morning, church. Today's scripture reading um, from the Old Testament is from Psalm 5, 5 through 7. The boastful shall not stand before your eyes. You hate all evildoers. You destroy those who speak lies. The Lord abhors the bloodthirsty and deceitful man. But I, through the abundance of your steadfast love, will enter your house. I will bow down toward your holy temple in fear of you. And from the New Testament, uh, from Acts chapter 5, verses 1 through 11. But a, na a man named Ananias, with his wife Sapphira, sold a piece of property. And with his wife's knowledge, he kept back for himself some of the prospects, of the proceeds, and brought only a part of it and laid it at the apostles' feet. But Peter said to Ananias, Why has Satan filled your heart to lie to the Holy Spirit and to keep back for yourself part of the proceeds of the land? While it remains unsold, did it not remain your own? And after it was sold, was it not at your disposal? Why is it that you have contrived this deed in your heart? You have not lied to man, but to God. When Ananias heard these words, he fell down and breathed his last, and great fear came upon all who heard of it. The young man, men rose and wrapped him up and carried him out and buried him. After an interval of about three hours, his wife came in, not knowing what had happened. And Peter said to her, Tell me whether you sold the land for so much. And she said, Yes, for so much. But Peter said to her, How is it that you have agreed together to test the spirit of the Lord? Behold, the feet of those who have buried your husband are at the door, and they will carry you out. Immediately she fell down at his feet and breathed her last. When the young men came in, they found her dead, and they carried her out and buried her beside her husband. And great fear came upon the whole church and upon all who heard of these things. The word of the Lord. Well, we continue our series in the book of Acts, highlighting some of the major aspects of the kingdom of God as it goes to the ends of the earth. So last week, Pastor Alan Smith gave a stirring sermon on the importance of prayer for the early church and the church to continue to grow through that same power of prayer. And now, up until this point in Acts, we see the church as this very idealized picture of, of holiness, of, of joy, of fellowship, of its impact, its work, its, its power. The Holy Spirit's work through the lives of these Christians so far has only really been a force for good. But we must remember something about our writer, the writer Luke. Uh, he is not just a, a writer, an author, he's a historian. And like all good historians, uh, they tell the truth of not just the good things that happen, uh, but the difficult, the challenging, the, the hard to look at parts of the church. And so here we are to deal with, despite the church and all the success in the early period, it had to face its first real challenge from within, and that is the hypocrisy of its members. And looking in this passage today, we come to a place where uh, we need to recognize what hypocrisy looks like today in our past and what the church needs to do in response to its own hypocrisy. So first, uh, could you pray with me as we pray for the preaching of God's word? Father, we are reminded that you are holy and in you there is no corruption at all. The very fact that we can stand before you is a testimony of your mercy, your love, your compassion, 
your steadfast faithfulness. Lord, the fact that you would send your Son to us, to cover us with his righteousness. Lord, we cannot even begin to grasp the wonders of this gift. But we pray and ask now that as we do try to untangle some of the, the, the majesty and the wonder of Christ, we pray that your Spirit would reveal to us our sin, our hypocrisy, expose that which is deeply rooted within us, and cause us to see Christ in a way that would draw us to a, a godly fear in all of you, so that your name would be glorified in our lives and through this church at City of Hope. Would your Spirit now bless the preaching of your word. In Jesus' name, amen. So, when discussing hypocrisy, uh, it's important to understand that the story in Acts 5 is not just the issue of two sole individuals who, you know, in isolation, committed a sin that was worth a punishment. You see, Acts 5 is a parable. It's, it's, a, it's a warning to the church at large. Luke's intention here in writing this passage is to help his reader, Theophilus, understand that the church is indeed a messy place, filled with people that could lend itself to hypocrisy that in a way is destructive to its very own existence. Luke's invitation to the story here is to see plainly and clearly how hypocrisy destroys the church from within and how the church must respond in a way that demonstrates a rightful fear of the Lord. So there are four things that we want to cover here about hypocrisy in our study of this text here today. One that we can hope to open up our own eyes, to see the realities of what God is calling the church to cling to. So here, here are the four things about hypocrisy that we want to kind of unpack here today. Uh, number one, uh, hypocrisy pretends to be holy. Two, uh, hypocrisy is ultimately against God. Uh, three, hypocrisy will be judged and justice will prevail. And four, hypocrisy calls the church to look to Christ. And so let's look at this first point here, that hypocrisy uh, pretends to be holy. Verse 1 of chapter 5 is a part of a larger section of uh, the end of chapter 4. In that section before our reading today, uh, we see this very positive, again, this very idealistic picture of the church. They were sharing with one another. They had generous hearts that gave to one another in such a way that it would appear that, that they had every possession in common. One of these individuals was a man named Barnabas who sold a field that belonged to him and gave it generously to the church. This generous sign that the church would have certainly been viewed with great appreciation and glory to God from those within the church community. So on the heels of this incredible gift comes Ananias and Sapphira. Names which literally mean the Lord is gracious and beautiful, respectively. Names uh, that reveal the way in which that possibly that they had been blessed by God. And in case that there is any doubt in the way that which they had been blessed, they were revealed here that they owned land, which was a sign of great wealth and stability, financial stability. So they witnessed Barnabas, you know, and they thought, well, you know what? Let's do the same thing that Barnabas did, right? Uh, and here we get to the hypocrisy that laid in their hearts. You see, in full knowledge of what they would do, they decided to bring the offering they had presented forward, making it look like they had sacrificed like Barnabas, that they had given all of the field, all of what was done. They gave everything. And yet, Scripture tells us that they fully intended to keep some of that which they had sold. 
So what originally would have been seen as this you know, voluntary, generous act is now clouded under the hypocrisy of pretense. They wanted themselves to appear holier, more generous, more giving, while still trying to cling on to something that they could call their own. This is not a grave danger just for these two individuals, uh, you see, but this is a great danger for all of us in the church at large. You see, Luke did not want to present the church as perfect, as though that every church should expect themselves to be Acts 2, Acts 4 with no complications whatsoever. Luke does not wish to cloud the understanding of the reality of what the church can do to one another and how Christians who propose to be disciples of Jesus Christ actually act for their own self-interest. The reality is, apart from the Holy Spirit at work, we are all in danger of presenting ourselves as more put together than what we really are. We can portray ourselves as more competent in the Word and in prayer. We can, be, we can display ourselves as more generous with our time, with our effort, with our service. We can even use uh, words like humility, being graceful, or on the opposite side of that spectrum, being truth-telling, bold and courageous, being compassionate, we can, we can present ourselves as these things, but the reality is apart from the Lord working His Spirit in us and transforming and changing our hearts, we are all in danger of being Ananiases and Sapphiras. We bring offerings. We serve in the church faithfully. Give just enough so that no one could question us, but there's a portion of us that holds something back that we think is really ours. Lord, you can have all of these things that people can see. But this right here, this is mine. And you can't take it away. The way that this continued distortion does is that we lie to ourselves about what God really wants and desires from us. We think that in doing this, we're being faithful to God's commands. We might even believe that in our deceptions that we are living out the holiness of God. We can believe the lies we've created for ourselves so deeply, so profoundly, that our vice becomes a virtue. And our entire lives can live out to be faithful to the heresies and the doctrines that God never taught us. And sin becomes a part of the culture that we live out as a church and as a people. You see, hypocrisy can pretend to be holy even in the life of the church, and we might not even want. The history of America is incredibly guilty of this kind of hypocrisy, especially using the name of the Christian God to defend it. In 1965, uh, a court case of Richard and Mildred Loving, if we have uh, their picture on the screen here, uh, they were on trial for the crime of interracial marriage in Virginia. Richard, a white male, and Mildred, a mixed-race woman, got married in Washington, D.C., you see, and moved to Virginia, where they were placed on trial for uh, their union. The judge for the court case was Judge Leon Bazile, who sentenced... Richard and Mildred Loving of a felony, punishable to 25 years in prison for coming together in an interracial marriage. Judge Leon wanted to state that this ruling was righteous because of God's design. He wrote this in his justification of this ruling, this quote from Judge Leon Bazile on the screen. Almighty God created the races white, black, yellow, Malay, and red, and he placed them on separate continents. 
and but for the interference with his arrangement, there would be no cause for such marriages. The fact that he separated the races shows that he did not intend for the races to mix. I don't understand. This, this wasn't some KKK head leader. This wasn't some fringe radical. This was a high-profile judge in the state of Virginia with tremendous power in the public courts and in the community. So it would be easy for us to dismiss Bazile's comments as rogue and not a part of the culture of the day, but in fact it was right in line with the viewpoint of the American church, a view that theologically conservative Christians who had been largely influenced by the writings of the Reformed theologian R.L. Dabney, who affirmed that black people were a part of the curse of Noah's son in Genesis 9, that African blood was degenerated and a product of the fall. This heresy allowed for the idea that races should never be joined together and viewed it as unholy. And the church stood by very quietly in defiant, hypocritical silence. Fortunately, it was not the overwhelming reputation of the church that called out Judge Leon Bazile, but rather the United States Supreme Court, which reversed this ruling, making June 12, 1967, two years later, for interracial marriage to be legal in the United States of America. You see, in other words, many marriages in this room have only been made legal in this country for only less than 60 years. I share this story because for us on this side of history, it's easy for us to see the inherent hypocrisy present, presented in the life of the church. It's so plain. It's so visible. It's, it's frighteningly horrible to witness. But for those swept up in the culture of their day, such hypocrisy was easy to entertain, even justifiable for quote-unquote God-fearing believers to uphold for in ways in which hypocrisy damaged the witness of the church. Just like Bazile's defense, hypocrisy pretends to be holy. It pretends to be pious. But in the end, it's always revealed for what it is, a sin that will be counted against those who don't repent. Ananias, in other words, wasn't just an innocent guy who got punished disproportionately for what might feel as an honest mistake. Ananias was challenging the very idea of what it meant to be a disciple. That hypocrisy and posturing could somehow be tolerated in the true church of God, in the name of looking like a holy and honorable individual. And this is what leads us to our second point here today. That hypocrisy, you see, is ultimately against God. Peter, being knowledgeable of the ruse that Ananias and Sapphira has set, gives Ananias the sobering news that what he has done is not hidden from the Holy Spirit. That Ananias ultimately isn't lying to Peter, he's lying to God. And that is both the work of Satan that filled him with this in his heart to do this and his own mechanization, his own cunningness. The stunning revelation that's present here that Peter is connecting to him, that the author Luke is connecting to Theophilus is something that would have rocked the, the, the church. His audience, Ananias' audience, this Holy Spirit is God himself. The third person of the Trinity is called God explicitly here in the text. So, if, you know, you've got ever got a person telling you, oh, well, Holy Spirit is never referred to as God in the Bible. This is where you go. Known by the apostle that Jesus called on the rock to which the church would be built, the promised helper, the Holy Spirit, that Jesus told his disciples about, this Holy Spirit is one with the Father and the Son. And yes, is indeed God. In other words, the Holy Spirit that was given to all believers 
to you and to me who confess Jesus Christ as Lord, we realize that all we do in His presence, all that we do in life, every thought, word, deed, these are all known by God for what they really and truly are. There are no secrets with God. There are no hidden sins. There is not a thing you think or do that isn't known for what it truly is. Hypocrisy ultimately has no place to hide. Now, uh, this might seem for us like a very crushing weight, but I want to make the argument for each of us here today that is actually much more of a freeing reality than any of us can realize. That knowing that there's no place to not actually frees us as believers. You see, if the Holy Spirit is God, and if all hypocrisy is ultimately against Him, then this frees us up to be honest about the kind of people that we are, and our shortcomings, and our misgivings in the community of Christ in a way that is real rather than forced and postured. So, in other words, there's no hiding, and that's a good thing for all of us. There are no secrets in a good way. This, this doesn't mean that we don't show discernment or judgment or good wisdom in terms of who we share and when, okay? All right? We don't go spilling out all of our deepest, darkest secrets to our five-year-olds here. All right? That's probably not a wise thing to do. All right? But it does mean that within the walls of the church, we built around us to protect ourselves. Those walls need to come crumbling down. Those walls are made of paper. Hypocrisy has no place to hide because hypocrisy is ultimately against God. Um, in the sport of weightlifting, uh, there's this famous article written by the uh, writer and musician Henry Rollins. Um, and, and this article has sort of become a, a doctrinal statement for all those who are into the weightlifting world. Uh, Rollins writes, in the iron and the soul, and he calls the weightlifting bar the iron, he, he makes this poetic statement that is meant to comfort the weightlifter about the bar that they are about to lift. He says this, which I think is really kind of, there's, there's a really interesting connection here. Uh, the iron never lies to you. The iron will always kick you the real deal. 200 pounds is always 200 pounds. What did Rollins mean by this? Uh, it means that he found comfort in the fact that he could not hide when it came for him to lift that weight. You see, it was going to reveal everything, his posture, his form, his strength. And rather finding shame or hatred in himself for the fact that he couldn't lift it or hurting himself on the other direction by trying to stroke his ego in lifting more than he could handle, the iron, you see, was shaping him to be like the iron, learning to be honest with himself about who he really is instead of trying to be someone that he could not be. Now we as Christians recognize what he's describing is more than just a statement about weightlifting, but really uh, life itself. The Christian doesn't identify their strength before an iron bar, but rather the solid rock of Christ. And knowing that our hypocrisy is ultimately against God, what Ananias and Sapphira should have seen was that there was no hiding. 200 pounds is always 200 pounds. The holy God is always the holy God. And that ultimately their posturing and rebellion was against him. Not just Peter, not just the church, not just the finance committee of the early church. Rather than freeing themselves under the iron and using the church to 
to stroke their own ego, they should have instead let the refining fire of the Spirit cleanse them as they trusted in Christ. You see, the real tragedy of the story of Ananias and Sapphira is that it prevents us from really understanding the gospel of grace. They, they had no conception of it. If the grace of Christ is really what the Christian can look to for life and salvation, there remains no need for pretense about how good we really are. We can go before one another in, in honesty, vulnerability, and weakness and say to ourselves that we are more sinful and wicked than we can ever possibly even begin to articulate. And that even our offerings are stained with this kind of weakness. But because Jesus covers us completely with his blood on the cross, we don't need to try to pretend to be holier than what we are. Nor should the people of God try and use ways to honor God to defend the indefensible. Instead of you resting on the work that you could have never have lifted and tr- why don't you trust that Christ has completely covered you with the strength to carry on? This is what the Bible means in that verse where it says, when we are weak, he is strong. See, it's not a sense of false humility. It's the source of true power to proclaim your own misgivings so that Christ is the one who carries you through. And that's what leads us to our third reality about hypocrisy today. Right, is that hypocrisy will ultimately be judged. For those who want to dig into our rebellion of God further, for those of us who think that there is a place that we can hide, for those of us who think that we are being holy when in fact we're living in sin, the words of the story give us a warning. Ananias and Sapphira face a penalty for their walking away from God. Uh, that on the front end of things seems very harsh to us. It's certainly not what a believer should expect every time sin happens. After all, um, Peter is not killed for his sin of discrimination against the Gentiles. Paul is not destroyed for his admission in Romans 7 that he is a wretched man. Uh, We don't know the reasons why Ananias and Sapphira face the immediate judgment that they do. Uh, But one thing is clear, that sin and hypocrisy without the grace of Christ that protects us, will always lead to our destruction. Without the saving power of the Spirit sealed on our hearts and the blood of Christ, which has covered all of our sins, we stand in judgment. Maybe not today. Maybe not tomorrow. But certainly we will stand in judgment for all that we have done. Now again, this is not meant to bring out terror for the Christian and for the believer because we have a firm foundation. We have a salvation in Christ. Because there's great comfort that actually comes from the reality that God will bring justice. The comfort for the church, particularly for those of us who have faced hypocrisy from within. Particularly for those of us who have faced the effects of abuse in the church, adultery in the church, abandonment in the church, violence in the church, verbal harassment in the church, bullying in the church, toxic leadership in the church. God does not look at all of this hypocrisy with indifference or inaction. Judgment is coming for all those who don't repent, as Sapphira had the opportunity to do so. And while Scripture doesn't tell us the eternal state of Ananias and Sapphira here, what we do know is that sin always has consequences. 
eternal for the unrepentant, temporal even for Christians who repent. Sin will always destroy, and God brings about consequences for this. And these are good things. These are just things. These are rightful things. You see, God will fight for justice for those who try to harm his flock and his people. It must be said about this, and this is a sobering reality for all those um, in church leadership and for the broader church as a whole today. Um, if we can bring <laughs> this sobering reality to light, um, and you don't have to raise your hand if you don't want to, how many of us here um, have been harmed by long-term hypocrisy in the church? Anybody? How many of us here know someone who has left the church due to the hypocrisy of the church from within? It's not hard to see how God's justice works in the life of the church today. When churches double down on their hypocrisy, when churches lay in bed with radical movements that provoke violence and hate speech, or are silent on matters that persecute the vulnerable, the poor, the orphan, the widow, or promote policies and political leaders that uh, show that their true allegiance is to a nation state rather than to Jesus Christ. We have lost our ability as a church to speak with credibility to a world that needs a true savior. We have lost our way to look at a Christ who says to be holy as he is holy. But the great comfort that comes, you see, with this judgment from God that Luke wants to make us plain here for you and I today is that the church can still remain a place of hope. For those of you who wonder, how can the church truly be a place of comfort if such horrible things happen within it? Acts 5 reminds us here that God does not sit idly by while his people suffer under injustice. That God is there. He sees the hypocrisy for what it is. He sees the pain that the church is experiencing, and he sits with you, and he will do something about it. His justice will not be perverted, and he will not be mocked. Now, this applies to everyone in the church, but especially, especially to those who are in leadership. The unfortunate and sad reality of my calling as a minister is that every year I'm reading an article or getting a call from my friends that talk about the failures of ministers who are now facing judgment for hypocrisy that they hid for years. Uh, many of us know of the big names that are out there in the world today, but the truth is that there are countless others in small churches across this country and in the world that have wrecked the flock of God with their hypocrisy. As my friend Pastor Owen Lee says, every church leader is three steps away from ruining their lives and their church, and we're all on step two. We're all in one moment away from ruining everything. And we must be diligent to pray that the Lord would spare us from embarrassment. So we covet your prayers as a session and diaconate that we may not fall into the same peril. Why? Because what Acts 5 tells us, the Lord will not be mocked. God will, as James tells us, judge those in leadership with greater strictness. So pray for us. Pray that we may live holier lives. Pray that we may remain vulnerable and honest about our weaknesses 
an elder that does not confess their sins publicly is a warning sign. Pray that we may not be seeking any other gain but the glory of God to be made known to the ends of the earth. Pray that we may not seek comfort and safety as I don't the gospel ever promises such things. Pray that Christ would be exalted in our hearts, in our minds, in our souls, in our strength. Pray that we would be open and honest with you all in appropriate settings, not to give glory to our sins, but to show that how much we need the gospel for as much as we preach it to you that you need it as well. See, the great hope at the end of this passage, and our final point here today, is that hypocrisy calls the church to look to Christ. Verse 11 says that a great fear came over the church. But if you look ahead in verses 12 to 16, which we didn't have time for here today, you'll see that this led to greater growth and conviction of the mission of the church to build more disciples. That those who were once dead in their sins and trespasses have now found life in Christ and the church moves forward with greater boldness and strength. You see, hypocrisy, in the end, doesn't have the final say in the life of the church. The great fear doesn't lead to, in other words, when we think of the fear of the Lord, we often think of this cowering whimpering, right? But no, it leads to true disciples pursuing Christ with greater reverence. You see, the fear of the Lord isn't just this brooding self-hatred of self. Oh, we're not our consummated heavenly body. No, it leads to say, we must follow Christ with all of our heart, soul, mind, and strength and love our neighbor as ourselves. Fear of the Lord is not merely about condemnation or gleeing in the destruction of another, but rather rejoicing so that the church can flourish in pursuing the same holiness that God is calling us to pursue. The Satan that filled Ananias, believing that he had dealt a death blow to the church with his hypocrisy, will only find himself crushed underneath the feet of our Savior. Because at the end of the day, the church marches on. No scandal, no schism, or sin can ever eliminate the true church of Christ from being destroyed. Rather, the sufferings that they endure press the church forward even stronger. With a limp to be sure, with wounds in our hands and feet, but looking a lot more like our Jesus. In other words, this call to holiness by way of negative example in Acts 5 is not a call for you to be guilted into trying to carry burdens you cannot carry. It's a call to see that we belong to Christ fully and completely. And because we are his children, he will pick us up when we stumble. We don't have to pretend anymore that we're someone that we're not. We can be who we really are meant to be and not posture ourselves as holier than we ought to. The fear of the Lord becomes the beginning of wisdom, as the proverb says. The fear of the Lord causes us to see redemption and hope where none can see. I'm reminded of this in our hymn of the month, uh, the hymn of the month, Nothing Between. It reminds me of the story of its writer, Charles Albert Tinsley. Charles was born in Maryland in roughly 1851. Uh, he was a tall and lanky man, and in an age just right after African-Americans were legally allowed to read in this country. Uh, he was never able to attend school. Charles taught himself how to read at the age of 17, scrounging around just to spell the word cat and learning how to read it. 
supporting his family by working as a janitor for Bainbridge Methodist Church, and at night learning how to sound out letters by candlelight. His learning and acumen soared to the point where, as he took Greek and Hebrew courses at Boston College, uh, where he self-taught himself all the way through such to the degree that all pastors that were trained at Yale and Harvard began to take notice of him. Charles' perseverance in the midst of circumstances that actively worked against his learning as a pastor would lead Charles to pastor that same church that he served as a janitor years later at Bainbridge Methodist Church. He became such an effective minister that he became known as the Prince of Preachers amongst the African-American churches in the region. And he was one of the founding fathers of black hymnody, songs that would last generations in the life of the church. What grounded Charles's hope in the face of a country filled with hypocrisy denying the very dignity of his personhood? What maintained his perseverance in the midst of this, this surrounding circumstances? It was lived out in this song, Nothing Between. Can we uh, skip to the fourth verse of that? Because I want to read here on these words. Nothing between even many hard trials, though the whole world against me convene. Watching with prayer and much self-denial, I'll triumph at last with nothing between. And then that chorus. Nothing between my soul and the Savior, so that his blessed face may be seen. Nothing preventing the least of escape. Keep the way clear. Let nothing between. Charles knew his Savior. Longed to see his blessed face. In the midst of the hypocrisy around him, he longed to have Jesus Christ to be made glorious. He longed to have nothing between him and Christ. He wanted to rid himself of all the hypocrisy that laid within and without, without of him, outside the church. You see, he knew, as Acts 5 reminds us, that hypocrisy does not have the last say for the people of God. Because all of us have a Christ that is greater than all of our sins. So let's pray together.